You're listening to The Archive, a collection of sermons and teachings from Pastor Mike and his peers from days past. Stick around for timeless truths that still speak to the issues of our days. Isaiah chapter 41, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 8, and we'll read through verse 16. Today I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible and encourage you to follow along in whichever version of the Bible you might have with you. I encourage you to bring your own Bible with you on Sunday mornings. You may have recognized that we've removed the Bibles from the pews. That's been intentional. That was my decision actually. And I did it prayerfully because I think sometimes we get people in bad habits. They don't bring their Bibles with them and you need to have your own Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one of those Bibles that you see on the tables or in the corners when you leave. We want you to have a Bible. If you do not have one, we encourage you to take one of those and make it your own. Put your name in it and read it and study it. Isaiah 41 verse 8 says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, All those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you but will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. For I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the only Holy One of Israel. Behold, I have made you a new, sharp threshing sledge with double edges. You will thresh the mountains and pulverize them, and will make the hills like chaff. You will winnow them, and the wind will carry them away, and the storm will scatter them. But you will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel." When Sid Gilman was the head coach of the San Diego Chargers in the NFL, he was asked about the aggressiveness of one of his rookies. The reporter who asked him was rather surprised with the retort of Coach Gilman. This is what he said. He said, the boy doesn't know the meaning of fear. And there was a pause and he says, of course he doesn't know the meaning of several other words either. Reminds me of a fellow fraternity brother. We were coming back from a football game when I was in college, and he was a freshman. At that time, freshmen could not compete collegiately with the varsity. And he was what we would call two sheets to the wind. We were in a bus coming back, and I was sober. I want to be on record about that. I was sober at that time. And I heard him say, his name was Jeff Hain, I'll never forget, he's from Missouri. He said, my body is big, my brain is small, I came to Memphis State to play football. (laughs) Not everybody, not everybody who plays football is dumb, but some of them are, evidently. Over the last 12 days, we as Americans have come to know fear on a different level than we've ever known it before, at least most of us have come to know fear 
on a totally different level. The Pew Institute research company reported last week that seven out of 10 American adults are having difficulty with depression, more so than they normally do. Five out of 10 are having trouble concentrating, to wit, Barry Bonds, after he finally broke the ice and hit another home run in his pursuit of Mark McGuire's Major League home run record, said, every time I got up to bat, I had a thousand things on my mind. Did you have that experience last week? Are you still having that experience, having difficulty concentrating because of all that's going on and those kinds of feelings that attend all those things which are going on? That same poll suggested that one out of three Americans are having difficulty sleeping. It's no wonder when the TV and the radio just floods us and inundates us with all kinds of negative, fear-producing messages. I saw where a congressman from Connecticut said that nuclear and biological and also chemical warfare are inevitable. That strikes the fear in anybody's heart, right? Now what I want you to know is he is not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. He has no way of knowing that. We need to be ready as Christians for any inevitability. We need to be ready for anything. And hopefully as a result of our looking at this passage of Scripture, we will indeed be prepared for any such difficulty or emergency which might emerge around our lives. I heard a mother on NPR this week say that she was concerned and fearful that the draft would be reinstituted because she had a son who is draftable age. I know there are fathers who have wondered, will they continue to be able to support their families with the downward plunge that the Dow took this past week? And then I heard a little child. And when we hear children speaking of fear, we know that it's widespread. I heard a little child say, that she had woken up more than one time since September the 11th having a bad nightmare that she was under attack by terrorists. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. There are people who are employed fearful that they'll lose their jobs because of the cutbacks. There are all kinds of fears abroad. But understand, this level of fear has been added to the layer of fear that we deal with all the time. There are two levels of fear at work at this particular time in our lives as Americans. There are those who are here today who might say, my marriage is bent and strained to the point of breaking. I have overextended myself financially, and I don't know that whether there will be a way for me to dig out of the hole which I have dug for myself. Some of you are out of work. Some of you are about to graduate from college and have yet to decide what to do or if you're if you land a job, whether you can cut it anyway. Some of you are single, still single, I might say, and all your peers have found a mate, and you're beginning to wonder if you ever will. There are those of you who are students who are Christians, and you stand up for Christ at school. Some of you in the workplace, you stand up for Jesus in the workplace, and you experience rejection from those around you. There are probably people here who've had a diagnosis of death by a medical doctor. All these things create fear in our lives. Would you like to escape this cycle of fear if you find yourself entrapped by it? And let me say this. I am one of those people who is from time to time assaulted by fear. It's not inconsistent to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ and at the same time have fear. 
Remember what the Apostle Paul said when he went to Corinth for the first time as he was on the doorstep of that city that was a city that was synonymous with all kinds of lust and all the things that go with it. It was also a great seat of intellectualism. But when he stood on the doorstep of Corinth, remember what he said, I came to you with fear and trembling. There is nothing inconsistent with being filled with the Spirit and having a certain amount of fear. It's what you and I do to manage our fears, and we're going to see how we can do that as we look at this passage of Scripture. Would you like to learn how to overcome your fear in your life? The answer to this question is to be found in one verse in this passage of Scripture, verse 10. Let's ask this text some questions and then find some answers from it. First of all, is freedom from fear found by looking outward? Once again, let's read verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. Now, we need to remember those to whom this was first written. These people were slaves. They were exiles living in Babylon hundreds of miles away before the days of modern travel and communication. Every time they would step out of their houses and they would walk onto the main thoroughfares of Babylon, they would step on paved stones, huge stones, and on virtually every stone there would be an inscription etched praising the false god Marduk of Babylon. So here they were in a faraway land worshiping their god and they were continually assaulted with the false god of the Babylonians. And they were tempted undoubtedly to begin to wonder whether their God was really rather interested in them or not. Certainly that would have caused them to look at their circumstances, to look outwardly everywhere they looked. They also knew that until this time in history, no exiled nation had ever returned to its homeland. They were subject of a government hostile to them and to their way of life. But God told them not to look anxiously about them. Evidently, they were already busying themselves doing just that. Has that been your experience over the last few days? Have you been so engrossed in all that's gone on that you're not looking in the right direction? You're looking outwardly? And I would say, be careful how much exposure you give yourself to the media, whether it's printed or it's visual or it's audible. Be careful. I think it would be wise if we spent at least one minute in the Word of God praying for every minute which we spend watching the media. Because there's no real hope, maybe some, but the bottom line is there's no great hope in the media because the circumstances are not all that positive. A certain businessman kept a worry chart and he found out that 40% of his worries probably would never happen. 30% were about things which had already happened, and he couldn't do anything about them. 10% had to do with health issues. 12% had to do with criticisms which had been lodged against him by other people, which certainly had nothing that he could do about it. And only 8%, he said, were really legitimate worries. We spend most of our lives worrying about things which many times never happen. Freedom from fear is not founded in surveying the landscape of our circumstances. So we need to give it up. We need to quit. Well, if freedom from fear is not to be found in looking outwardly, maybe it's to be found in looking inwardly. The Hebrew language, not unlike the English language, sometimes the words have different shades of meaning. 
And one possible interpretation of the word which is translated here in verse 10, do not anxiously look about you. Some of the versions, for instance, the Revised Standard Version of the Bible says, do not be dismayed. But one possible interpretation is, do not look out for yourself. The idea conveyed, the most basic idea in this word, is the idea of to look at with interest, to fondle one's feelings, to become introspective. The problem with introspection is that it dethrones God and replaces Him with you or with me. Look once again at this verse of Scripture. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. Do not be dismayed. Do not become introspective, perhaps, for I am your God. When I begin to look inside of me, certainly I do need to take an occasional look there. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and lead me in the way everlasting. I need to ask God to scrutinize my life to get rid of the sin in my life, and I do that regularly, and we all should do that. However, once that's been accomplished, it is a futile thing to look inward because there's nothing in me that would recommend me to myself or to anyone else. The only place I can end up if I insist upon looking inwardly is in the slough of depression and in a difficult situation. Now this had obviously happened to these Jewish exiles. They had looked about them and their circumstances dictated fear. They had heard from their captors how despicable and sorry they were. And the reason I say that is to be found in verse 14 of this passage. Please look at it again. God says, do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. Do you believe that God had that viewpoint of his people, that they were worms? I don't think so. I think God was choosing a phrase which was commonly used by the Babylonians to describe them. The Babylonians probably said to these captives, you are worms in the dust of Babylon. It was their way of keeping people in psychological bondage. You are worms, you're no good, etc., etc., etc. But notice what God says in verse 9. Let's return. Really, we probably should read 8 and 9. But you, Israel, my servant, not the servants of Babylon, not the servants of Marduk, not the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, and by virtue of the fact that your progenitor, your great-great-great-granddaddy, Abraham, was my friend, I call you my friend also. Verse 9, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not rejected you. God doesn't look at us like a bag of worms. If we're in Christ, he sees us as his heir, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And these exiles had begun to look at themselves in this way. It reminds me of the response of the ten spies who went into the promised land. There were twelve in all, you may remember. And when they came back to tell of their journey of spying out the land, what did they say? Ten of them said, this place is exactly the way God described it to us. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. However, there's some big folks over there known as the Anakim, and they're giants. And as far as I can tell, Goliath was more than likely a descendant of the Anakim. These guys are huge. And those ten said to the rest of Israel, we seemed like grasshoppers to ourselves. Why? Who were they focusing on? 
They were focusing on themselves. What had God already said? The land is yours. You just have to go and conquer it. The people insisted, however, upon sending a group to spy out the land. But here these men were, and they persuaded the rest of the people to see themselves in the same way. We seem like grasshoppers to ourselves, these ten spies said, and so we seem to them, that is, to the Anakim. Do you know that only two of over 600,000 men 20 years of age or older who left Egypt out of bondage, only two entered into the land? Joshua and Caleb? Why did they enter the land? Because they did not counsel with their fears. They did not make a judgment based on externals, nor did they look inside for strength within themselves. So where is this overcoming and freedom of fear to be found very clearly, and you've already surmised it? It's to be found by looking upward. Let's look again at verse 10. This would be a great verse, by the way, for you to learn and then to meditate on. If you wrestle with fear, I strongly encourage you. This is a great verse to take and to commit to memory and meditate on it. Think about it regularly. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. A possible interpretation of the word righteous is victorious. That's the way the Revised Standard Version translates it. Is there any more safe or victorious place than the hand of God? Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And by the way, I don't want to assume anything. Is it possible that you're here today, and your greatest fear is that if your life were instantly snuffed out, in an unsuspecting manner, just like the lives of those over five or 6,000 people who lost their lives in the Pentagon or in the World Trade Center last week or in a plane that crashed in Pennsylvania, are you ready to meet your Maker? Is it true of you that you have come to know Jesus as your personal Savior? Let me remind you of what 1, Peter chap uh, excuse me, 1 John chapter 4 says. It says, perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with judgment. And those who are in Christ will not be judged. If you're in Jesus Christ, He has given you eternal life, as we read from 1 John chapter 5 earlier. And He is the life. If you have Him, you're safe. There's no safer place than to be in the victorious right hand of Jesus. And then Jesus goes on to say, no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to take them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you and I are in Christ, there is no safer place to be than in the hand of God via Jesus Christ. To overcome fear, you and I must look to God and to His promises. Have you noticed how frequently God says, fear not in the Bible? And how in virtually every instance where He says, fear not, there's an accompanying promise for I am with you. That's the basis of of no fear in our lives. It's not screwing up your courage. It's not getting psyched up. It's not depending on a strong military or a strong president. And thank God we do have both in this nation. It doesn't have to do with any of that. It has to do with the presence of God. Listen to what David said to his son Solomon before Solomon ascended the throne. It's found in 1 Chronicles 28, 20. He says, be strong and of good courage, my son, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. 
then he goes on to say, fear not, nor be dismayed. The word translated dismayed in that passage of Scripture is the same word that's translated dismayed or do not anxiously look about here in Isaiah chapter 41.10. And then David goes on to say, for the Lord will not fail you or forsake you. Isn't that great? The Lord will not fail us. He's incapable of failure. We fail all the time. He never fails. If we are faithless, the Bible says, He remains faithful to us. He cannot contradict Himself in this regard. Matthew 28, the closing remarks that Jesus made before ascending to heaven, He said, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. In John 14, 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In Hebrews chapter 13, God says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And here's one of my favorites. We touched on it last Sunday, Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Is there anyone who can be against us if God is for us? Absolutely not. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now, what is the meaning of God's presence with us? Very quickly, He's with us in sympathy. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He cares about us. He understands. He understands what happens when tragedies occur as they occurred. Was He absent? By no means. He was aware of that. And the Bible says He is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. He is not only with us in sympathy, but also in identity. When Saul was on his way to kill Christians in Damascus, Jesus intercepted him, and he said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? So he's with us in identity. But you know, I can be with people sympathetically, and I can identify with people and be of no value to them whatsoever. None at all. But the difference in me and our God is that our God is with us in transforming power. Notice again the last two lines of verse 10 of Isaiah 41. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He will strengthen us. In the 815 worship hour, we sang, Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in His strength alone. That is the source of our strength. When God says, I will, He says it with the authority of omnipotence. He will transform our fears into something constructive by giving us hope and faith. Do you know of anyone besides God who can take a weak worm and turn it into a powerful machine? That's exactly what He says that He has done in verse 15, look at it. Behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. You will thresh the mountains and pulverize them and will make the hills like chaff. The kind of machine that God is talking about that He has transformed Jacob into or Israel into is a fearsome machine. It was made of solid, heavy logs. It was used after corn had been cut down and dried and then the thresher would take this large machine and pull by horses and pull it over and it would t take the fruit off the cob of the corn and then the chaff would blow away. The story of the Bible is one of God's taking unlikely candidates for valor 
and transforming them into heroes for His glory. Are you a coward? Do you tend to get fearful about any number of things in your life? Well, let me tell you something. You are in great company. The greatest people in terms of their usefulness to God, according to Scripture, are people who by and large were fearful people. Remember when God first appeared to Moses, if we had time we would read it from Exodus chapter 4, but this was the gist of the conversation. Moses, I have chosen you out of all the possible spokespeople, and you're going to speak for me. And do you remember what Moses said? Please, Lord. Twice he said, please, Lord. Have you ever had to speak in front of people for God or speak to an individual? You probably said, please, Lord, not me. That's exactly what he said. He said, Lord, I'm neither eloquent, I'm slow of speech. He said, not me, God. You got the wrong guy. There are all kinds of people who are better candidates than I am for such a job. And the Lord acted as if he didn't even hear him. And he, he added this. He said, Moses, who made your mouth? Who made you, Moses? Who made you psychologically? Who made you physically? Who gave you the speech impediment that you think would keep me from using you? You know, some of the most effective preachers of the gospel I've ever heard are those who have speech impediments. Have you ever heard David Ring preach? Has anyone here ever heard him? If you haven't, I've tried to get him to come here, but he's so hard to get. He has cerebral palsy. You can hardly understand what he says. But let me tell you, God uses the man every time he speaks. Don't you think he would like to cower in some corner and never come out because of his disabling cerebral palsy? But he doesn't let that stand in his way because he knows what the Bible says is true. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. What about Gideon? We've talked about him in recent weeks. Gideon hiding out from the Midianites, and the angel of the Lord appears to him. And I, I love this. I have to repeat this to myself often. The angel of the Lord says to this little pipsqueak coward Gideon, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. To me, that's one of the most humorous statements God ever made. The Lord is with you, you coward. The Lord is with you. And you know the rest of the story, how God used Gideon and 300 other people to rout the Midianites. An incredible testimony. God is expert in making something out of nothing. You know, I want to say that one more time. God is expert at making something out of nothing. Would you say that with me? God is expert at making something out of nothing. So you're nothing. Praise the Lord. Because He takes things that are nothing. How did He create ex nihilo, the theologians say, out of nothing? In the book of Job, the Bible says that God hung the universe on nothing. If God created that way, He can do that in your life and in my life. Some of you business people are familiar with the Peter principle. Basically, this principle states we rise to our level of incompetency. Now, I know many of you are still on the way up. You haven't reached your level of incompetency. I've reached mine a long time ago. A long time ago. And I'm not saying that facetiously. I did a long time ago. Over 25 years ago. Christians always operate those who are used by God on the Peter principle. We've all risen above our level of competency who among us is competent to love like Jesus, to serve like Jesus, to live as Jesus. 
The other side of the Peter principle is that Peter himself, the apostle, overcame. Why? Because his confidence was in Christ. He was described as an unschooled, ordinary man, but they saw that he had been with Jesus. What they really didn't understand at that point was that not only had they been with Jesus, but Jesus was in him. This is the most remarkable thing that I could ever imagine. I could never have dreamed it up, nor could you, nor if we collected all of our senses, we never would have dreamed what I'm about to say, what the Apostle Paul said. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Now remember who this Christ is. Remember what Jay read from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. All things came into being through Him, and nothing came into being except that which came into being through Him. Do you know, Jesus fashioned the universe, and He lives in me. Wonder of wonders. Incredible. Well, the long and short of it is, in Isaiah chapter 26, the writer says, Thou dost keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is fixed, stayed is the word the old translations use, fixed on you because he trusts in the Lord. The Lord is to be the object of our trust. When you fear, make a beeline for Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. One of the translations translates the word author, the pioneer of our faith. He's already blazed a trail. He's been to tomorrow. He's been to the next hour. He knows what lies ahead. And I can be sure that I can trust Him. I can follow the pathway which He has blazed, but I have to trust in Him with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding. In all my ways acknowledge Him, and He will promise Make my way or my pathway straight. God responds to my faith, not to my fear. Jesus knows that I'm a fearful man at times, but He has offered me an alternative to fear, as He has to you today. So in conclusion, how are we to deal with this matter of fear First of all, admit it if you're afraid. There's a handful of people here today who probably never have any fears. So this has not been for you. But maybe you ought to tuck it away for future reference because there may come a day when you do experience fear. First of all, you admit your fear to the Lord. Then you release your fear to the Lord. In Psalm 55, 22, David says, Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be forsaken. If this thing known as fear has become burdensome to you, cast it on the Lord. He died for your fear. And then the last thing that we do, in addition to admitting them and releasing them, is we refuse to retreat. In the Bible study that I teach at 9.30 every Sunday, and any of you are welcome, by the way, to come to that, we were talking about putting on the armor of God. And one thing I did not get to note for the group was that all the pieces of the armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, my feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, all of those have to do with the front of the soldier. They do not protect the back. The moment I turn my back to the devil then I become vulnerable to his suggestion of fear. 
James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, carefully listen to this as we finish. The word translated resist means stand up against. Don't run. Stand up against. Jesus stood up against the devil when he was tempted in the wilderness. And he responded with the word of God every time. An appropriate word from God for that particular occasion. Jesus unsheathed the sword of the Spirit and he beat the devil. You and I can do likewise with regard to fear. Provided we saturate our hearts and minds with trust in God and the word of the Lord. And he will respond because he wants to give us victory over fear. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you now to make us men and women of faith. Help us to overcome any fears that might have been suggested by this invasion of our country by terror. Lord, on a personal level, wherever we're wrestling with fear, I hope, Lord, that you would teach us to give it to you because you have already taken care of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.